0: Good morning, everyone. We're looking at the book of Genesis, and we're looking at chapter 3 and verse 6 this morning. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Before we move on to other things in this divinely inspired, interesting and instructive book of beginnings, I thought we should take a look at Satan's tricks and tactics of temptation that he employed with Eve, and which has never changed throughout time. His plans and ploys have always been the same. He's a one-trick pony, so to say, which means we should be easily aware of what, how and when he's going to attack us. we're not going to go into it now in much details, but there is much to learn from who it was that Satan attacked and what Eve did. She was deceived, having acted independently, foolishly, and transgressed or overstepped her position with catastrophic results. As for Adam, he wasn't deceived. He went into it with his eyes open. Scripture says he offended against God and he was disobedient to God's command. Consequently, by one man, sin came into the world, and death by sin. In these things we see the beginnings of what is so blatantly obvious in society today. The satanic plan is, and evidently always has been, to reverse everything that God established in his perfect wisdom and divine order. I haven't got the time, nor do I believe this is the place, to comment extensively about all the things that I believe to be so disgusting in what Satan is doing and what our society is embracing today. Our parents and grandparents, even those who weren't professing Christians, wouldn't believe the darkness and perversity of our once Bible-believing, God-honouring and beloved country. I can only say that those who promote such things and the authorities that permit and legalise them will answer one day for it before the judge of all the earth. But that's not really my subject. What I want to concentrate on today is the temptations themselves presented to Eve and how they are so relevant for us here and now. Notice what the Apostle John says in his first letter in the New Testament. Love not the world, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Incidentally, what is referred to as the world isn't the physical earth, of course, but rather the world system, which Scripture tells us is in the lap of the wicked one, Satan. You see, he is the God of this world, the Bible says that, because he is the usurper, But praise God, not for much longer. His end is in view, I believe. If you read the New Testament and consider in the early chapters of the Gospels, the temptations of the Lord Jesus, you will read of him fasting for 40 days and being tempted by the devil. At the end of those 40 days, he had three specific temptations presented to him. They were effectively these three types of temptations That we've just read about in both genesis and john's letter firstly the lust of the flesh turning stones into bread to satisfy his hunger secondly the lust of the eyes showing him and offering him to all the uh, all the kingdoms of the world and finally the pride of life suggesting the spectacular the honor he would receive from those watching him being caught by angels if he was to cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple Just to digress for a moment, I find it so wonderful and amazing to observe several things from these temptations of the Lord Jesus. He was tempted to sin, but never was he tempted by sin. Why? Because there was nothing in him that responded to sin. He was absolutely holy. Scripture describes the child of Mary, the Son of God, as that holy thing, Scripture also makes it very clear that this man, Christ Jesus, is God, manifest in the flesh. And again, Scripture says God cannot be tempted with evil. It also tells us, as for his spirit, he knew no sin. As for his soul, in him is no sin. As to his body, he did no sin. I've heard preachers say that Jesus was tempted like we are but overcame the temptations and didn't sin. But actually that's only half the story. It wasn't only that he didn't sin, he couldn't sin. You see he is totally sin apart. This is why he is the only, the one and only saviour, the only one who could die in the sinner's place because of his sinless person. He was both willing and able to take my sins upon himself and suffer the judgment consequent upon them. The scripture says about him, who his own self bear our sins, and I like to put my name there, bear my sins in his own body on the tree. How beautiful. I expect you know the the old hymn that says, there was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And a verse from my favourite hymn says, Because my sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I wonder if that's your experience. But let's return to the matters relating to us and temptations, because this is something very practical we as Christians still have the flesh to contend with that constantly battles against our spiritual life and desires. We're tempted and have the propensity to yield to those temptations. But because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we also have that divine power resident within us to resist temptation and to be overcomers. The temptations we face today come to us in the the same basic forms and ways as they did to Eve in the Garden of Eden and to the Lord Jesus in the wilderness. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. What is the lust of the flesh? It is the desire to satisfy and gratify our supposed and self-justified physical and emotional needs at the expense of decency and morality and of God's honour and holiness. Satan tempts us with all kinds of things that appeal to our inner lusts, such as sexual gratification, gluttony, excessive alcohol consumption, drugs, both legal and illegal, as well as the deeds of the flesh that Paul talks about to the Galatians. He says this, that the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the such like. What a horrible list. However, in in contrast to this kind of behaviour, please remember, my dear Christian friend, how these tendencies can be avoided and rejected. Listen to what Paul says to the Philippian believers. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. And the opposite to the works of the flesh in Galatians is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness and self-control these are the things that should mark us dear child of god this morning secondly what is the lust of the eyes i suggest it is that insatiable desire to have what we see it is the must-haves of this world the pursuit of material possessions and the constant appetite to have more and more and especially those things that are pleasing to us and that would appeal to others around us, possibly even with the intention of making others jealous. It is to have the biggest and best of everything, the latest, fastest and coolest cars, the most exotic holidays, wardrobes full of every kind of clothing in every colour, shape and design, the latest and best technology, etc., etc. The list is endless. This sin is constantly being sold to us in every advertising ploy the media can design and use. If we can't afford it, there's always the lottery or something else the goddess of chance will offer. But for the Christian who desires to resist these temptations, and I trust you do, the word of God tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can carry nothing out and having food and clothing, let us be there with content. And you remember what Jesus said? Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust corrupt and where break, uh, thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven for where your treasure is, there, there will your heart be also. Can I ask my own heart and yours this morning, where is your heart? Thirdly, what is the pride of life? It's in fact Satan's own character. This is the worst of all the temptations and possibly the most prevalent. It was what Satan personally was engaged in doing when he had ambitions to occupy the throne of God. Read about it in the Old Testament. And we know how that ended in him being cast out of heaven. I take it that what appealed to Eve was what Satan said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. She thought of herself becoming something and someone that was great and glorious. But we also know how that ended, exactly the opposite, being cast out of the garden and experiencing the misery and sorrows that followed. God hates pride. In Proverbs chapter 6, it's the first of the seven things God says he hates. We spoke about that uh, some months ago. It is the exact opposite to what God calls every Christian to be, humble. This sin is when we when you and I make ourselves something or someone greater than what we really are. As we've already observed, the pursuit of greatness and personal glorification is hateful and obnoxious in God's sight. And it is that which is diametrically opposed to the way in which the Lord Jesus acted when he was here. Read Paul's letter to the Philippians. It says over and over that the Lord Jesus humbled himself. God says in the book of Jeremiah, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. It also reminds me of another scripture that instructs us, All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. I've said it many times, but it bears repeating. The way up is down. But God, when we humble ourselves, will exalt exalt us in the sense of giving us opportunity and the privilege of serving him in some way or other. But But this temptation is so subtle that we can, if we're not careful, be proud even of our humility. No, true greatness is lowliness, humility. When we speak well of others and never have an arrogant and self-important attitude that demands others to look at me. Do you remember the story of Snow White and what the Wicked Witch said? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest one of all? Thinking that she was, of course. I do hope that's not true of me and of anyone who loves the Lord Jesus listening to my voice this morning. One of the most well-known chapters in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 2, it says this, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of us look not on our own things but on our own interests, but also on the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. It says later on in that chapter, that God exalted him. How beautiful. There are many other aspects of this subject that could and possibly should be said, but what I'd like to do is to be as practical as I can be. Temptation is at least twofold. Number one, the inward desires or lusts wanting satisfaction. Number two, the outward enticement that caters to those desires. Scripture describes it like this. Each person is tempted when they are drawn away by their own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So what are we to do when we are tempted? In the New Testament letter of Jude, after speaking about those people who were characterized by lustful and sensual behavior, this is what he says. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And then he closes his letter with this wonderful doxology and speaks of the availability of power to live the overcomer's life. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Saviour, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So you see, there is power in God to enable us to overcome. Here again are the verses I quoted at the beginning. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, If anyone loved the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world, and the world passes away. And the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. So in conclusion, the everlasting possession of eternal life and the present daily enjoyment of it is to know God and Christ. And that personal knowledge of God becomes a blessed reality as we seek always to do his will, keeping ourselves in his love. As we read his word and depend upon him in prayer, we will lay hold on eternal life, apprehend it, so to say, and his power and enabling grace will protect and preserve us from yielding to those temptations we have been considering this morning. I trust this hasn't been too complicated. May God bless his word to you today.